if Arthur has opinions on things, he is allowed to say those opinions. I want to make sure that's clear now that we're almost <laughs> to the end of this project. Right. It has always been an open door. <laughs> And welcome to A Century in Cinema. My name is Arthur, local filmmaker here in Utah, who's just waiting for his own deus ex machina. And I am Andrew, a professional film historian. And I finished the bottle of gin four weeks early. I had a bottle of Alpine gin I'd been sipping on very slowly throughout this whole project. I finished it off today, so I didn't quite budget it out correctly. But I would say close enough. I would give myself a B plus. Might also be a comment on the film we're watching this week. It could could be. This is a podcast where we watch and discuss a classic film that I have not seen. And neither have I. At least for this year. For this year. <laughs> this week we're in 2015. We watched Bone Tomahawk, directed by S. Craig Zoller. For any new listeners, you can find where our movies are streaming or available to rent online down in the link in our show notes andrew and i rented this one on amazon and we watched it together we did we watched it at arthur's house on arthur's tv and audience i had to turn off his motion blurring Hmm. i still dispute that (laughs) i don't think so (laughs) i noticed it and i noticed it go away (laughs) it's it's my word against andrews but uh i don't think there was any motion smoothing going on now i'm going to put this at the top of the show We are almost finished with A Century in Cinema. We only have four or five episodes left, uh, something like that. And if you've been a listener with us for a while and you haven't had the time to head on over to Apple Podcasts or the podcast streaming service of your choice and give us a nice little review or five stars, now is the perfect time to do that. Just because the show's ending doesn't mean that new people can't find A Century in Cinema and uh, enjoy it. We really appreciate those of you who have already given us ratings and reviews out there, but it is not too late. Thank you so much. All right, 2015, give you a little context for the year. You'll remember the Syrian civil war, the subsequent refugee crisis in Europe, mainly due to the Syrian civil war, but also just a general conflict in the Middle East. You'll remember the Islamic terrorist attacks in Paris. You might also remember the terrorist attack in the U.S. in San Bernardino. The Nepal earthquake, China scrapping its one-child policy, the Paris Climate Agreement being signed, New Horizons passing Pluto and sending back some extraordinary images of the dwarf planet, Yep, and same-sex marriage becoming a national right in the United States. Woo! Not for long, but no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) All right, let's let's, let's try to be positive here, but yes. You're right, you're right, you're right. Nothing's happened yet. Recording on... October 9th, 2022. It is important. 2015. What's at the top of the box office? Well, no surprise here. Just over $2 billion worldwide. Star Wars Episode 7? The Force Awakens? I can't believe we're already here. Like, this is really weird. This does feel weird. I feel like, I can't remember which episode it was when you said, well, now we're just a modern movie podcast. And I was like, no. But I I can agree. Now that we've hit the final five, something is off. I don't want to talk about The Force Awakens. <laughs> yeah, I kept my ticket stub for a while. I really liked The Force Awakens. That's cute. It was fun to go see it, honestly. It was a fun time at the movies. Um, end of comment. Not as fun of a time at the movies because no one went to go see it with me is the number two film worldwide, Jurassic World. I actually can't believe that. Number three at the worldwide box office is Furious 7, which beat out number four's Avengers Age of Ultron. Oh, my God. I mean, I have strong opinions of the Marvel films. I think they're fine. Age of Ultron is not very good, though. Where did Mission Impossible fall on this? Mm, Eight. Okay, as long as it cracked the top ten. God, did you see Rogue Nation in IMAX? Yes. Wait, maybe. I don't remember. I think that was my blockbuster that year. I don't I don't remember any other blockbuster. Well, okay, Mad Max Fury Road is definitely intended to be a blockbuster, but I don't think any other major hit did any like I did not enjoy Mocking Jay. Why have I said I've seen Spectre on Letterboxd? I want everyone to know right up front. I just fixed it. I took off the watched thing. I have never seen Spectre, and I don't know why I had it marked as watched on my Letterboxd. Makes me question other things on here. 
there's a lot of James Bond posters out there, and you might have just clicked watch I, for one of them. I was like, is that Casino Royale? Well, <laughs> I saw that one. <laughs> the Big Short came out this year. Great film. Which is a movie I feel like we've sort of side-recommended throughout, uh, but I still think that's a very good movie. Um, I'm ready to give my official recommendations, though, of the year. Uh, starting off, I'm not going obscure. I unironically will defend this movie. I don't get the hate it got back then. I love... I. What I'm trying to say, Arthur, is that I absolutely mm. love The Hateful Eight. I think it is oh, yeah. such a great movie. Good film. I got the distinguished pleasure of getting to see The Hateful Eight during its roadshow tour before it came out. It was in Portland, and we all went and saw it projected in 65 with the intermission and the overture. And I was so swept away. I was I was like, oh, Tarantino knows how to make a room feel like a world. That entire packed audience came out of it thinking, wow, what a hit. And then when it came out, it got a very tepid response from audiences. And uh, I don't know, maybe people aren't ready for Tarantino does Agatha Christie. I went to L.A. for the roadshow as well. Do you want to tell viewers why the roadshow was pretty cool and pretty important for this time period? I mean, what was the roadshow? Some people might not even know what that is. There used to be roadshow releases of films back. This was more prevalent in the 60s and 70s. Hmm. But what it was is it's most of the time a longer cut of the movie than going to be released in regular theaters. It used to be it was not like this for The Hateful Eight, but sometimes actors who were in the movie would tour around with this roadshow as well. And it was just a really big event. You would get little playbills, which they did give out playbills at uh, The Hateful Eight. Do you remember which character you got? No, I don't. But I had that playbill for quite a while. Mine's still in the box of things that I don't know what to do with. But I got the Samuel L. Jackson (laughs) one, and I was very happy with that. Yeah, so that's what a roadshow is. The Hateful Eight was the first movie to get a roadshow premiere in a long time. I have not done any substantial research on that, but I know that it doesn't happen very often. And the main reason was that it was bringing, if I I might be a little wrong about this, I know that it was bringing the film to project. If I'm correct, I think it also brought projection systems with it, uh, and it had to be in specific theaters that could accommodate those projectors to project the 65 millimeter film, which is why it was such a uh, rare thing to behold. And yeah, it was a magical experience. I have seen the theatrical cut so many times that I'm not quite sure what scenes were in the extended one. There are people who will know what those scenes are. What I'm trying to say is that the theatrical cut is just as good. I did love the overture and the intermission. I thought those were wonderful. And I wish overtures and intermissions in general would make a comeback in movies. I feel like in 2015, this was really important to have a physical film strip projecting a film because it's now something that doesn't happen anymore. I think it was in 2013 or pretty recently that there was basically a mandate that all the... U.S. theaters had to have digital projectors. That was the way that Hollywood was going to start shipping out all of its films from now on. So digital projectors are the way of the future. Film projectors are the way of the past. So this felt like a um, a celebration of the old way of watching films. It was cool. I liked it. Next up, I'm going to recommend Green Room by Jeremy Solnier, which is a film about a punk rock band in an underground venue witnessing an intense sequence of violence and essentially being held hostage by neo-Nazis. This was a really fun, pulpy horror film, but also was a really great distillation of modern American thought and ideology, especially from a more conservative perspective. I found it to be very entertaining and interesting, and I think the entire cast does a great job with it. Patrick Stewart as a bad guy is great. Yes, Patrick Stewart gives a phenomenal performance. And I like movies that make it their goal to sort of differentiate extremism from uh, popular thought, show how popular thought can potentially lead to it, but how they are, at the end of the day, two different things. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Next up, I'm going to recommend the animated film Anomalisa. Anomalisa? Sorry, it's anom- it is Anomalisa. <laughs> Which was the uh, 
Charlie Kaufman film of 2015 about a man who is an inspirational speaker, essentially, but he is going through a huge depression. He is at this hotel about to do a, a sort of like a TED talk, and he meets this woman. Her name is Lisa. And all of the characters, except for him and this woman, are voiced by Tom Noonan. And it creates this effect of how the entire world around him has blended into this sort of samey, same, nothing is special. And then Lisa comes into his life and he's momentarily reinvigorated. It's just a really great film about getting older. And though you're witnessing a very depressing perspective on the world... I find a lot of hope in the perspective because you as an audience member can't help but think, wait, you could get out of this rut. You've got to stop looking at people this way. And at the end of the movie, you realize, oh, I also need to get out of my rut and don't need to look at people this way. And I think that's a very special effect a movie can have on an audience. Then I'm going to recommend, and uh, I'm so sorry, I'm going to butcher this woman's name, but I'm going to recommend The Lure, directed by... Agnieszka Smogzinska, and she is Polish. While I might not be able to pronounce her name, I can sure as hell recommend her movie. It's, it's like a pop-punk musical adaptation of The Little Mermaid set in the modern era. It really doesn't pull any punches. It's got a lot of really crazy horror elements to it. The music in it is phenomenal. This has become kind of a cult sensation in the years since its release, and I think it's a wonderful cult musical. I love cult musicals, as I have described in many episodes in the past. And this is, I think, the most recent one I can recommend that I've seen. I loved it. I would have loved to have had this as our film for the year. I saw the poster for this and I was like, interesting. God damn it. Don't tell me that right now. I'm in a sensitive space. I'm sorry. I would have absolutely loved to have done the lore this year. Well, go on. Yeah, yeah, we'll do. <laughs> oh, that one hurt. Um, <laughs> my last recommendation for the year is the independent drama Grandma, directed by Paul Weitz. It stars Lily Tomlin and Julia Garner. Julia Garner has recently become pregnant and is trying to decide whether or not she wants to keep her baby. Lily Tomlin plays her grandmother, who is very supportive of her no matter what decision she makes. It was a great film of its time to come out and talk about the abortion conversation topic in America at the moment, and I think in the years since has only become more relevant and poignant. I think it's a wonderful movie, a wonderfully acted, small little script, and Lily Tomlin is just wonderful. So, yeah, those are my recommendations for 2015. Do you like do you like Sicario? You like Carol? There were a lot of great awards sort of worthy movies. I mean, The Witch was a wonderful movie this year, Ex Machina. It was a great year for movies in general, I think. And The Revenant was the one I was really excited about. Listeners, I want you to know this right here right now. I have nothing against it at all, but I have never seen The Revenant, and I've been told by many oh. people that I would like it. Yeah, I think you would. I think you would. Tangerine's also great. Like there, yeah, I I really enjoyed a lot of movies this year. My obscure recommendation for the year. I mean, if we're going to talk about Bone Tomahawk, which is a uh, discussion to come, but um, I might as well recommend Embrace of the Serpent, which is a much better film. Oh yeah, great movie. I saw that at Sundance. An incredible film. A great anthropological study. And I saw it back in 2015, so I might be forgetting some details, but it's just a great look at the ethics of anthropology and and these explorers who are in the Amazon talking to tribes and trying to understand them and getting a good sense of their their religious beliefs. And there were moments at the end of this film where I got goosebumps. Yes. Where I think I had something like a religious experience too yeah i really like embrace of the serpent it's a great little film i love that movie i i found the way it moved through time to be very entertaining and it never felt the need to dip into sort of the more traditional narrative tropes but the learning of the culture that was happening with the audience 
that's where it derives all of its entertainment value, which I think is a pretty big risk, but I think paid off in a huge way. It made me as an audience member feel smarter. It made me feel respected by the artist. And directed by Tiro Guerra, spoiler alert, in 2018, I will be highly, highly recommending his film from that year. So, Well, that was well put. Um... What else can we do to delay this? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I am. Ex- I actually am very excited for this discussion. As we said, Arthur and I watched this together, but as with most of the time, we did not have any sort of discussion afterwards, but there was a very brief exchange between us at the end that I think sort of got our general thoughts across. However, <laughs> I'm excited to dive all the way in. And hear your opinions. So this week we are discussing the film Bone Tomahawk, directed by S. Craig Zoller. I have the plot this week. Go for it. Bone Tomahawk is a film about the dying days of the Old West. Set in the town of Bright Hope in the 1890s, we follow four men who are on the hunt for a tribe of cannibals called Troglodytes. They are seeking out these cannibals as a member of their party, Arthur O'Dwyer, is attempting to rescue his wife, who was kidnapped by the troglodytes. Arthur is joined by Sheriff Franklin Hunt, the humble and accommodating law presence of Bright Hope, Deputy Chicory, Franklin's old and forgetful partner, and John Bruder, an unapologetic racist who hates Native Americans as a tribe killed his mother and sisters. Spoiler alert for Bone Tomahawk. The four of them camp and talk and schmooze until they finally come upon the cannibal's lair where we are treated to some very effective body horror. Most of the crew doesn't make it out alive, but Arthur and his wife do, as well as Deputy Chicory. The three of them walk back to Bright Hope and try not to see too much irony in the town's name as Chicory is at death's door, (laughs) Arthur's leg has been wounded to the point of amputation, and Arthur's wife has essentially just watched Cannibal Holocaust on loop for a week with no means of escape. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's that's the movie, right? That's the movie. Yeah, it ends on such a bright note and then yeah we're sitting there as the credits are rolling being like what those people are dead they're like a week away from town and they're gonna die (laughs) well i thought this was an entertaining film the experience of watching it from scene to scene was a lot of fun honestly i liked a lot of the dialogue i liked a lot of the situations i liked the character interactions quite a bit i thought this was a posse a band of eclectic characters and i liked the way that they were all playing off of each other i especially liked how arthur that's uh the guy played by patrick wilson i like how he has a broken leg um or not a broken leg but it's not in good shape and he should not be out in the wilderness but there's no stopping him i mean his wife was captured he's got to be there i like a lot of the drama going on And then the schlocky horror at the end is schlocky and silly. And Andrew and I were having some fun with it, I guess. We were making a lot of noises and saying a lot of things. But, um, you know, the film just kind of ends and it ended exactly how I called it towards the beginning when I was like, I think that Kurt Russell is going to go out in a blaze of glory. He's going to sacrifice himself. And he does. Uh, That's the sheriff. And uh, I think that they'll rescue the the wife. She'll get away. She'll be okay. Um, It's going to be a happy ending overall. And yeah, it it just kind of turned out exactly how I expected, which was not expected. I don't know. I thought this movie was going to surprise me a little bit more. Um, I guess what was surprising was the stupidity of it. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) The the racial politics of this film and in its director uh, looking into it after the film, like, oh, no. Oh, shit. The the traditional Western is back, baby. I guess so. (laughs) But we have a whole section devoted to that in our podcast today, so I'm not going to get too far into it. Okay. Um, You loved it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i i vehemently disliked this movie <laughs> i think i'm gonna be playing defense and i hate this film so that's interesting i i did take the time today and i truly like 
I'm not kidding. I meditated on every single title that we have talked about up to this point. And I, I do think I'm trying not to have recency bias, but I really think this was this is the worst movie on our list for me. Worse than <laughs> Things to Come. Because Things to Come was camp, you know, like it, it had those moments of silliness. And I, the thing is, is that I remember when we were talking about Things to Come that you were talking about how you felt bored by it, which was not an emotion I really shared. And just now you were saying that you were entertained by this from scene to scene. But for me, I was bored out of my mind watching this movie, mm, which okay. I do think is, uh, you know, sort of the death knell for me with movies. It, it, its aesthetics just didn't really work for me. All of this budget is being put towards costumes and sets and things to make it reminiscent of a certain time period but then the way the movie itself is shot and the way it's lit and the way certain scenes are achieved feels so like it feels so 2015 it feels like you know a small budget indie i would see at sundance and i just i just felt like that contrast of the image versus the goals of the story. It was just a little bit too much of a contrast for me. Yeah, I mean, we will get into it more, but I want to say this. Hmm. I don't mind movies that are taking place in the Old West and therefore characters have the racist inclinations uh, and, and pretty much that they act like people in the Old West would have. I don't see anything wrong with that from a storytelling perspective, but this film has a sort of catch-all moment near the beginning. For me, this movie was like, oh, I'm not racist, I have a black friend, the movie. And <laughs> I I found that to be very annoying. And I, I just, yeah, this movie depends very much on you caring about those four men because there's this huge stretch in the middle of the movie that is just them camping and some of the comedy worked for me Richard Jenkins was the home run of the cast I thought he was actually very funny in his role he's the old man he's deputy chicory but for me as someone who found the characters hard to relate to and was not invested in the narrative I found that stretch to be almost intolerable. I'm really happy I did come over and watch this with you because if I'd been watching it by myself, I think I would have had to have turned it off and then finished it the next day or something, which would have been a big inconvenience. <laughs> not my thing. Not my thing. Uh, and then it has this insane third act, this like crazy body horror, which, yes, I will agree with what Arthur said. We were like laughing and going, Ooh! during it and stuff because I like the body horror stuff. I do. I, I like body horror in general. But in retrospect, now that I've been thinking about this movie for a few days, all I can think is, well, that was just more unpleasantness on a vast ocean of unpleasantness. None of it none of it, none of it worked for me. None of it worked for me. This movie was not made for me. That is very apparent when you go on Letterboxd or IMDb or other places. This movie seems to have a pretty strong following with people, which was kind of a shock to me. But again, you know, not every movie is made for every person. I did. I did absolutely detest this movie. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I can't recommend it. I think there are so many people who are scared of the Western genre that are like, oh, it's all slow and boring and it's hard to pay attention to. And then they're going to watch something like this and all of those fears are going to be validated and then they'll never give the great movies in that genre a chance. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend this film to anyone because there's much better Western examples out there. Just better films that I'd recommend. The Hateful Eight was this same year. The Revenant was this year. I bet it's better. <laughs> that one was shot by Lubeski, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, immediately that's going to be better for me personally. <laughs> I love that man behind the camera. Yeah, oh, and what, there was one thing you brought up I wanted to comment on as well. You had said that this hmm. movie surprised you and how it didn't surprise you. I was thinking of ways it was going to twist the narrative, and, and I was sure it was going to go that way. I was like, Arthur's going to read this letter he longs to read to his wife. He's going to read it to her oh, over yeah. her dead body. And then I was like, Deputy Chicory, the old man, he's the one that's going to go out in the blaze of 
glory, I think uh, Kurt Russell's going to make it out. The one thing we agreed on early on was like the racist guy is going to die. Like that was obvious. He's going to die. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I was like predicting ways in which it could have subverted the plot. And uh, it didn't didn't take my advice. It didn't go for it. No, this film does not want to subvert any cliches or tropes or anything. I think that, I mean, Craig Zeller wants to make like a gritty Western. He wants to, I think he said that he watched like a ton of Westerns and said, I can do a movie better than that and made this. But it feels like a distillation of a lot of the tropes and cliches that you'd expect in Westerns. And it's not subverting much of anything. It's just making a grittier, bloodier schlockier version of a lot of westerns but it feels like it might be a more elevated cannibal genre film because i understand that this is a whole genre and i am not familiar with it i have not seen cannibal holocaust i know these infamous films are out there but i am not familiar with them this feels like it might be the the most highbrow film in that genre i don't know my my vote goes for cannibal the musical haven't seen it but I'll take your word for it. I actually think you that's Trey Parker and Matt Stone. And it's like, oh, okay. it came out right in the middle <laughs> okay. of the 90s, right when like those shock, those shockumentary cannibal movies were big. And they made one that's just called Cannibal! Exclamation point, the musical. <laughs> and it's great. It is wonderful. Although this is not your cup of tea. The reviews in 2015 for this little film were generally positive. Now, it's important to mention that this is a two million dollar films just under two million dollar film very small budget this is kind of like a micro budget film yeah kind of weird because honestly i know you don't like the aesthetics of this and i, I can see why you don't but it looks pretty good for a two million dollar film it i think it does i can agree to that i think they stretch that number as far as they can go especially given the talent that they have in the cast but a lot of the reviews in 2015 kind of focus on this aspect of the film people are amazed by what the crew was able to achieve at the scale that they were working on. This was shot in 21 days, and that's a really, really quick production. I will say that also, that did blow my mind. As much as I didn't like the aesthetic of it, I wouldn't say this looks like a $2 million movie shot in 21 days, although it kind of does, but like... <laughs> it kind of does in that you've seen this set before. You've literally seen this set before. It's the Paramount western town ranch set it's the paramount ranch yeah uh it's since burned down in one of the many fires that are just around now did you know that the cannibal cave is the cave in iron man and yeah yeah in the cannibal cave is <laughs> you've seen that set too so you've seen these sets before so they're using the sets that are available uh, but there's also intention to the way that they're shooting this they're not just going out into the wilderness and pointing the camera and shooting they start in like this greener looking wilderness and as we venture further into the wild towards the cannibals lair it gets more sparse until we're basically in this really like dead looking barren wasteland so there's a intention to the production i think that that is worth commending uh and a lot of people mentioned the quentin tarantino sort of dialogue or you know the references to genre filmmaking from the 60s 70s but all the reviews that I was looking at just kind of overlook the glaring problems with the tropes and cliches and just indulging in the Cowboys versus Indian narrative that this is that this is right. Mm -hmm. The New York Times review specifically ends with this quote, which I just thought was funny. Bone Tomahawk may boast abysmal racial politics, but they're also true to the terrors of the time. Of all the things we can expect from an old West picture, cultural enlightenment isn't one of them. So just kind of saying, yeah, it is what it is. But I think that makes sense for a review written in 2015. I think that if this film were to come out today, critics would hold its feet to the fire quite a bit more. And it seems like more people are based on more recent reviews. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I think that for me, the racism is more of like a cherry on top of like why the movie's bad. We can just cut to the punch on this, right? Like I'm just going to jump in on it. Yeah, yeah. So we have a Native American character at the very beginning who looks essentially looks at the audience and says, "These aren't Native Americans, these are troglodytes. These are this different thing, blah 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 blah." And the movie goes out of its way in its opening 
act, it's opening kill, and then when the kidnapping of the wife sequence happens, that they don't really show you what they look like. So it's sort of left up to the audience's imagination. And then during the journey to this cave, the four main characters keep referring to them as savages, which it has been made pretty clear to the audience that they see Native Americans as savages as well. So there's not much of a differentiation. Differentiation between the cannibal clan living in the caves and Native Americans as a whole, at least in the text of the film. Right. From the characters' perspectives, they they refer to them both as savages, which, again, that's not where my problem lies, because there were a lot of people who felt that way in this time period. And, you know, this movie is about those types of people. But the movie feels like it's going to give you a reveal to really definitively say these aren't Native Americans. I thought it was going to go the full like the hills have eyes and these were going to be some sort of early European settlers or something like it was going to be white people who had been inbreeding and like had done this and that was going to be the reveal oh that would have been smart yeah but then when the reveal happens they they are Native Americans who have just gone down a different path essentially and that's really when the movie becomes quite ugly what was the point of doing all of that setup of convincing me that not just myself but the characters were going to be proven wrong that these were Native Americans if the actors playing them are Native Americans and you do nothing except for say well these people just chose a different path in the way they were raised in saying they aren't Native Americans it just feels so strange and weird I just didn't I didn't get it 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 didn't make any sense to me at all in the end why it was even trying to have that commentary at the end of the day, it does feel like the Native American character at the beginning, who's called the Professor, it seems like the Professor only says that about them being troglodytes, not Native Americans, but you won't recognize the difference because you're racist. It feels like he's only saying that so that the movie has a kind of a catch-all underneath it. It's like, oh, look, I'm not racist. This is like some fictional thing. It's also trying to make this narrative of, you know, these really barbaric characters that are supposed to represent Native Americans in old Hollywood, what if those kind of people actually did exist and did do the things that are like stereotypically Native American? So again, it's like if the twist was, oh, these are a bunch of white people who settled here earlier, because this whole thing is fictional, this whole concept of the troglodytes, of the cannibals, this is all fiction. So you could take it any direction you wanted. And if they had gone for a direction like that where the characters really were forced to realize, oh, these aren't like people different from us. This is us when we came here and a different direction we took. And I know I shouldn't project my wishes for how I would create a script and a story onto a movie. It's always annoying when people criticize a movie for what it didn't do as opposed to what it does because a movie is never going to do everything you want it to do because it's not going to, you know, make your uh, taxes go away. But it's like... I just feel like what was it makes me ask, what was the point of all of that buildup? What are you trying to say? What is this movie about? And I just feel like it's not really about anything. That's how I kind of interpret it. Yeah, I feel like Craig Zeller as a director, as a writer, kind of agnostic to the whole idea of racial politics, at least in his interviews. I don't know what he actually believes, but I think he just wants to just see crazy, hardcore shit on screen. Like exactly what you said. There are these expectations and tropes that have trickled into the um, American fear complex about, oh, man, these savages out in the wilderness, Native Americans, scary, like just that's that's awful. And it's just this movie is like, well, what if that's true? What if what if we can just like have that be true, but also not be racist? Right. <laughs> <Just> yes. Stupid. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's indulging in the tropes and cliches and fear mongering that surrounded Native American culture and westward expansion and Indian wars and all this stuff. And it's just indulging in it. It's it's crazy. It's like you have this movie made in 2015 that is just cowboys versus Indians, and it has an excuse to get away with it. It's dumb. There's much better Westerns out there subverting that and doing it in a great way i mean i know a lot of people 
have problems with Wind River, but Wind River's politics are <laughs> like enlightened compared to a film like Bone Tomahawk. I hate having to concede to that, but I will. I will. Yes, Wind River politically is more astute than fucking Bone Tomahawk. What a bar. What a bar to aspire to. Wind River's not bad politically. I just don't like it because I'm a hater. Fair enough. Um, the troglodytes abduct the white woman. It's a, you know, it's a damsel in distress story. We've been talking about that since our very first episode, Birth of a Nation, right? This is just such a dumb cliche we've seen in Hollywood, racist fear-mongering. Um, and then, yeah, they're, they're cannibals, which is just fear-mongering about native tribes and and uncivilized, quote-unquote, people. You know, there's there's actual reports of cannibalism in the West, you know, like the Donner Party, people who like resorted to cannibalism because they are actually white starving. People. Yeah, they're white. <laughs> yes. And they're Again, white. that would have been such a cool twist. <laughs> like it just it really annoys me that it isn't the twist of the movie because it in retrospect, you're like, was that supposed to be the twist? And then it just right. kind of wasn't. There are there are actual reports. You know, there are accounts of cannibalism um, being practiced by native american tribes but you got to take those accounts with a huge grain of salt because they're usually there to justify raids they're usually there to justify genocide right and then of course there's the scalping which you know scalping is a is a is a complicated big subject but you know a film like this you only see the native american characters scalp the white people you only see it from that perspective um i don't remember i don't think there's ever been a hollywood film if you if you can name one let me know where we confront the fact that the u.s federal government had scalp bounties and sending out mercenaries to collect native american scalps and there was no discretion about bringing warrior scalps women's scalps children's scalps just bring us scalps that's what the u.s government was saying to the mercenaries yeah i mean the only movie i can think of on the top of my head where Scalping is even acknowledged as an American pastime is Inglorious Bastards, but it's not presented in that sort of light in any way. So I can't think of anything off the top of my head. And I'm also talking about how it was like it was like dictated by the U.S. government, right? By state governments. It wasn't just something that right. like violent, crazy people were doing for fun. It was like something that was being written into law. Do this. And we'll give you money. <laughs> That's the Western we're going to write. It's all about bad white people. <laughs> but a film that actually confronts like the brutality in the West from a real perspective, not just from this dumb fear mongering perspective that is made for for white people to click on and rent. This film made its money back, not by a lot, but it made its money back in video rentals. I don't think it had a great box office, but it was considered a success. Modestly. Was this at Sundance? This premiered at uh, Fantastic Fest, uh, a film festival uh-huh. for like genre films. Yeah. Early on in this film, I was like, oh, this is just The Searchers again. And um, loyal listeners will remember that I hated The Searchers. And loyal listeners will also remember that my only defense of The Searchers was its aesthetic value. And this film did force me to confront that <laughs> because I was like, oh, you take away the aesthetic pleasure, and sure enough, I really do McFucking hate this. <laughs> <laughs> as weird as it is, though, this was a more entertaining film for me than The Searchers. I just liked the characters here quite a bit more. Uh, I liked their interplay. I do, yeah. The Searchers was much more entertaining. But the heart of this film was still abysmal. Right. And the heart of The Searchers is also an abysmal black hole. I remember that you had said about the searchers something about it's trying to put uh its heart in the right place but at the end it just uncovers more ugliness or something like that like i I remember you said that you know it really showed something really ugly in american culture but i still feel like the searchers at its heart is trying to fight ignorance and racism it does not succeed and I, I agreed with you in that episode and i still feel that way now but that movie had an intention behind it that feels like it was somewhat positive mm-hmm. whereas this movie the intention feels very ugly and misguided to me 
Like, I don't see anything in this movie that is trying to achieve something grander or reach into any sort of thought and make you reassess stuff. Like you said, it feels like the director is more indulging into, I want to see some really messed up images on a screen, and this is how I'm going to get it there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the the woman was a doctor, so it's pretty progressive, <laughs> you know? She's not just your regular damsel in distress. She's smart. Yeah. And her hair looks awesome. When we saw her in that cage, Girl. when we got to see her in captivity, <laughs> she was doing just fine. Yeah. She was okay. Clearly, the blinded pregnant women know a thing or two about dry shampoo and foundation because, like, her hair and makeup was pretty great. <laughs> And what was up with, like, the pregnant women who had things stuck in their eyes and their legs were chopped off? Just what's the most fucked up thing you can put on screen? But, like, how much more fucked up would it? Like, it would be more fucked up if it was, like, a bunch of white men and then we find out that the impregnated, blinded, hobbled women are Native Americans that they've, like, captured. That's way grosser. That's so much more... Like, that would leave more of an impact on an audience, not just in a emotional way but in a schlocky campy way too like it'd be like oh the god this movie's fucked up like i don't know it's just like it doesn't even really achieve that for me it has an image it has a single image in it that will probably never leave my brain that a lot of people talk about um i mean i'm gonna spoil it so if you don't want to hear it you don't have to it's the scene it's the scene in this film it was the only thing i knew about it going in but yeah we see a member of the police the police posse, we see him get split in half brutally. It takes multiple chops, and then he sort of rips apart like Velcro once they hit a certain part. Because human beings are kind of like uh, are kind of like canvas, where it's really hard to rip apart, but once you get like the first cut in, you can just rip all the way down. Did you do your research on that? No. Um, I just thought it would be fun <laughs> to say in a podcast. <laughs> uh and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was horrifying. It was disgusting. It did make me queasy. It did make me, I won't lie, it did make me cheer a little bit because I love that kind of shit. Like, that's the thing is that I feel like as Craig Zoller and I aren't too different in what we want to see in movies and, like, the kind of body horror we like. One of his favorite films is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, my God. Yeah, the body horror in that one's Cray Cray. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Anyways, listening to interviews of him, honestly, I mean, he just loves film. He's kind of like Quentin Tarantino. He just likes old movies and he's just like, yeah, I'm excited about all this stuff. Yeah. How depressing to release a movie the same year as The Hateful Eight. And I mean, The Hateful, I haven't even really thought about this. The Hateful Eight is all about racism in the Old West. It's all about people who have these insecurities and old prejudices against black people native americans again man a lot of people have trouble with quentin tarantino and his politics i mean i, I hear people talk about this every now and then but straight up enlightened compared to bone tomahawk once again i do think at least the hateful eight objectively is approaching that as a subject matter and is making it a focal point and then discussing it with the audience. Yes. Whereas Bone Tomahawk is. is like, here's an excuse for me getting to make my racist movie and then just does it without any further commentary. I'm, I'm trying to remember. I feel like The Revenant had some problematic stuff in it. But at the end of the day, that main bad guy is one of the white settlers. Yeah, there, there's a lot of brutal stuff going on in The Revenant. Is that Tom Hardy? That is Tom Hardy. See, I know a little bit about it. I know there's a bear. Yeah, th there's there's. There's a bear. <laughs> Anyways, um, what do we want to talk about? I really hated the way this movie looked. Well, I think you hate the way that a lot of movies look. I think that's fair. A lot of modern movies have this sort of digital sheen. I like to call it a sheen. It looks a little glossy. Something about it looks a little bit too good. Movie, movies and television that had digital work done that I thought looked wonderful though i will say this i love that russian doll show on netflix okay that's all extremely digital but the way it's lit and presented i think looks wonderful the dance of reality which we watched for this podcast i don't think it holds back in any way from looking very digital but the images it produces and the way it uses that aesthetic to its benefit knowing things are going to look more theatrical and campy and leans into it, making things look very theatrical. I think there are ways to use this aesthetic 
to your advantage. I don't think going into a movie saying, I'm going to make a movie that looks like an old Western, but it's going to look extremely digital. I don't think that's, I don't think that's entirely possible to achieve. I would love for someone to prove me wrong, but even the hateful eight, which I've been praising throughout this whole episode that was shot on film and it looked it, it looked awesome. Yeah. So when you say that something looks digital, are you talking about the process of filming it or the process of something going on in post-production with the film in like the computer when it's being edited? Like what exactly are you talking about? It does seem to be consistent among projects that have been filmed with digital cameras. That's like the red, the Alexa, that kind of thing. But there is definitely a lot of it that happens in post-production. I think, you know, again, I think Dance of Reality looks very digital. And it is it is hard for me to define it. I'm not as well worded and well trained in this area as you are, for instance. I don't know if that's even true, but go ahead. I just feel like you have way more experience behind the camera than I do. I'll concede to that. But I think that, like you said, you're an aesthetics person. I think that you notice this more than I do. That's probably fair. So I should have a way of wording it. That's okay. I'm wondering if this is also like a trend, a popular look going on in the color process. Because, of course, a lot of our listeners will know that when you shoot a film, you need to color it afterwards. It's not like the camera just shoots it looking like that. But you put like a style onto the film and it looks a certain way. And I'm I'm curious if this is a popular thing that a lot of colorists in Hollywood are leaning towards um, for one reason or another, like putting in more contrast and just like making the blacks look a certain way because this is what's expected of the craft right now. And unless the director tells them not to do that and to go a different way, if, if there's a producer over their shoulder saying uh, do it a different way, then this is just kind of the go to look for modern cinema. Yeah, it just looks it just looks digital. Um, and it, and sometimes it works for me and sometimes it doesn't. It, these kinds of words are hard for me. I have a thing that I call the Netflix look, which isn't even necessary. I mean, it is digital, but it's specifically the way Netflix things are color graded across the board that I'm like, why does it look like the Netflix thing? And I say that about movies that like Dr. Sleep. And so, yeah, in kind of a similar vein, the digital look, but this movie not only has the post-production thing of whatever, you know, make, I didn't think none of the day for night worked for me in this at all. Mm -hmm. You know, again, the day for night and dance of reality where everything is already done in these big striking colors and these huge Theatrical. moods and emotions Whereas in this movie, they are trying to convince me this is happening at night. And there were some shots that did happen at night. And then they would cut to day for night footage. And I, my brain was like, why? Why is this happening? I didn't think it looked good. But also the camera work itself, there is way too much shaky cam in this movie for the kind of story it's trying to present. It does have the occasional long shot. It does have these occasional steady cam moments, but so much shaky cam all the way from the beginning. I don't know. It just doesn't work for me visually in any way. Okay. Yeah, I, I was okay with all of, all of that, I suppose. Um, again, when it's a $2 million film, I'm willing to concede that sometimes you just got to manhandle the camera and, and get the shot over with. I don't know. I'm okay with it. But that. I'm not going to give them an excuse because of the fact that they overcame their resources. I'm still going to judge it as a piece of art on its own merit. Like, I, you know, I loved El Mariachi, and that movie wore its budget on its sleeve like it was a trophy. And it that one was very obviously the budget it was. But again, I thought it leaned into it and did cool things with it and made a very fun, entertaining flick. Mm-hmm. And this one was like trying to convince me that it had a bigger budget than it had and that it was more prestigious than it was. But I saw right through its facade. <laughs> I think the best part of this movie is its poster. I think that poster looks great. It's a beautiful looking poster, truly. Yeah. The poster is bringing forth images, ideas and a certain aesthetic value that the film within is unable <laughs> to produce. <laughs> I I am happy that we had one more movie that, you know, you, you seem to like it more than I, but I think at the end of the day, both of us were not big fans of. I am happy we got at least one more in before the end of the series. I think there was a hope that Twilight might do it, but then we both ended up loving it. Um, so, <laughs> so it was funny that it was one that was really unexpected. And I have to say, it was like 
30 minutes into the movie, I didn't say anything out loud because I didn't want to, you know, affect the vibe or anything. It's good for you. Yeah. But about 30 minutes into the movie, I started thinking, hmm, I think I hate this. And then <laughs> and then by the end, I was like, mm, yep, I hated that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I stayed invested. I stayed in the room in the moment with you and like. I might have made a few sly comments, but I didn't voice any major. We were both making comments. But at the end of the day, I feel like we were having fun with it, at least just with each other. Yes. A good time. Just like great on the movie. Great time to spend with a friend. Legitimately, I I was I was having fun. I was entertained throughout the film. But then, yeah, almost as soon as it was over and especially like towards the end, I was like, oh, this is dumb. And (laughs) the more I thought about it, the more I was like, oh, that was bad. Yeah, I'm 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 glad we had another film that we. didn't love <laughs> we have so few we just say we, we we want to watch good movies we don't want to watch bad movies on our list legitimately though thank you for not trying to ruin the film i've told you about my experience with other people and how like sometimes their hatred for a film can sort of infect my viewing experience and i don't i don't like that no and and i did want it's very important i think to both of us that we have our own opinions of these movies even when we're watching them together, you know, uh, I know there's been a few times where we watched one together. Specifically, I remember Cloud Atlas, you said that watching it with me, my love for it was infectious. But I think giving a movie a more positive feel is almost fine, because then if someone does hate it, even after you've given it that, they have to find their own way of, you know, like you have to realize, yeah. why did I not like it? So it can almost open up. But I think if you have somebody just ripping apart a movie next to you while you're trying to enjoy it, it becomes really hard. You got to play yeah. defense. You got to you got to feel like you're like you feel like you're on edge a little bit. Yeah. And it's very important to me for movies in this project, especially that we do have our own opinions and our own thoughts. So when we watch them together, there's a certain amount of respect. Involved. That's right. Because we're professionals here. Professionals. Do you want to give S. Craig Zeller his own section here in our podcast? Yeah. I mean, you know, he seems to be a, I mean he's a very interesting figure in Hollywood right now. I think his career path is kind of incredible. I genuinely do. I think it's kind of amazing that he uh he's written all of these scripts and some of them have been bought and he's made money from them but n- none of them have been produced. <laughs> this is the spec script market, man. You just like churn out scripts and production companies buy them just in case. Um but you can make a decent living doing that as I understand it and I don't know if you know what the blacklist is. The blacklist, you might know. Our audience might not know, though. The blacklist is a a list of these scripts that everyone in Hollywood kind of agrees are good, but they haven't been bought. Apparently, Zaller's scripts are on the blacklist. So people know him for his script writing. Yeah, I think I mentioned it in the episode we discussed spec scripts in, but... Um, But yeah, I think that the fact that he was getting artistically frustrated with the scripts not being made into movies. So he switched into making music and writing novels and publishing them and getting artistic fulfillment through that is really impressive. I mean, it's just impressive that he even has that skill set, truly. And then, you know, it came down to him saying, I really want a movie to be made. So it looks like I got to do it myself. Well, him and his producer friend, but yes. Yes. he, But he still footed half the budget for this. Great. I mean, a million dollars is nothing to sniff at. Um, <laughs> but when you're in when you're in the movie making business, it kind of is. Um, I just think there's something interesting that he said, OK, I've got this script. This is a script I can make for this amount of money. And ta-da. And I think that, I I don't know, it is impressive to me. I think this is, you know, not the worst first feature ever made. And I think for a first feature, especially when it comes to the acting and a lot of the stunts, choreography and effects in the movie, I don't think it shows as a first feature, which I think is impressive. Honestly, yeah, The, the cast is great here. Yeah, I did think the acting in general was pretty good. I don't know why Patrick Wilson gets a sex scene in every movie he's in. I don't fully understand it, but I know I'm always on board. And that was that was a nice little highlight in this movie. What was the point of that? That was another just sort of like almost exploitative scene that wasn't quite exploitative. 
we needed that to understand they loved each other, I guess. He was in love. He was in love with his wife. Yeah. That's how S. Craig Zoller views love. <laughs> I don't think S. Craig Zoller believes in love. I, I don't think he's married. So if someone isn't married, that means they don't believe in love. <laughs> because he's an intelligent man. He's he's never getting married. Oh, I mean, do you think the Matthew Fox character is his writer avatar? I mean. That that would be that would be weird because he's that'd so be bad. horribly racist. That would be bad. I'm not saying yes. I'm just saying that'd be bad. <laughs> I hadn't even considered that there might be a writer's avatar in this movie. Uh, for me, it felt like he was one of the cannibals and I was the guy getting split in half. But oh god. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Maybe that's a good transition to talk about. Although S. Craig Zoller is a uh, fascinating artist with a great career trajectory for a small independent director. Um, maybe he's a little problematic. Maybe it's a, it's a solid maybe. He seems to not care what people yeah. think of him. And um, <laughs> okay, his films that he produced and directed after this speak to some trends that I find troubling. Have you seen them, or are you just talking about the article I shared? No, I'm just talking about the article you shared and reading the plot descriptions for them. And you can kind of see it in this film, sort of a, a reverence for the law and seeing police and justice as mm, unassailable. Yes, seeing them as sort of this perfect ideal. Blue Lives Matter maybe sort of vibes going on here. Hmm. Yeah, I don't. We I, haven't seen the we haven't seen the rest of his films. We've only read about them. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. He, someone being politically incorrect doesn't turn me off to them as an artist. I mean, I've discussed that at length on this whole project, and I don't need for his politics to align with mine to enjoy his art. I need his art to be good, to enjoy his art. Okay. Maybe I'll read one of his books and realize, oh wow, I am wrong. Or maybe I'll just read one of his books and be like, oh, this guy should just stick to writing books. Maybe that's a more realistic thing. Hmm. But, yeah, politically, this movie is all over the place. And he does mention that in the article. You know, he says sometimes they disagree with the, with themselves inside of the movie. But there is absolutely a horribly racist character in this movie who does not learn anything about his racism. And then in a huge show of heroism... Like, essentially spouting off the same rhetoric he's been spouting off the whole movie uh, does the sacrifice play. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm like, oh, oh, okay. I'll give the movie this credit. Hmm. When it comes to that beat that is in every script, essentially, well, most scripts, I should say, you have to hit a moment where all of your characters are at their absolute lowest and things look completely hopeless and there's no way out. I will say this movie has a very effective moment in that part of the movie. I think both of us really were thinking, how are they? Everyone's just going to die. Wow, this is going to be a very <laughs> like I remember we talked. We, we mentioned that a little bit while we were watching. It was like, oh, I guess everyone's just dead. Like, that's how it's going to end because it seems completely hopeless. And uh, it was a little silly getting to the ending. But I was impressed with that there, that there was a redemption moment. Of course, the movie is expected, like we said at the very beginning, as you, as I said in my plot synopsis and you commented, the movie does want me to believe that they make it back to the city, and uh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> if it had even just leaned just the tiniest bit into, there's no way these people are going to make it out, I, I would have had more respect for that even, just something mm -hmm. as a, but the movie is just so wishy-washy about everything, it doesn't make a statement about anything because it doesn't feel like it's about anything and maybe it doesn't need to be about anything but it does if, if it's not about anything it better be entertaining and i feel like that huge stretch in the middle of the movie destroys that as a concept destroys it as being well, a, a commonly entertaining movie i would say commonly you, sure I, I i yeah i thought it was entertaining but whether you want to have your film be about nothing or have it be about something, your film is about something all the time. It's going to be about something. Absolutely. Take it in the context of the genre, the time period, the climate that it's made in. Your film is about something. It can't be agnostic. You are taking some sort of stance with your art by putting it out in the world. And if you, you don't have to care what I think, but I think 
This is an ugly film. Let's move into final thoughts. Yeah, I agree. Um, final thoughts. Go see the lure. <laughs> and I'm not going to butcher her name again because I respect her. But what a great movie that came out this year. Uh, yeah, this not my not my thing. And I can see, I mean, even now, I, right now I'm taking a moment to just sort of scroll through Letterboxd reviews. I am seeing some that are a little more recent that are a little more negative talking about issues in this movie. But there's it still feels overwhelmingly positive. So clearly this movie is doing something for people that it does not do for me. I will say that I am not grossed out by it. I'm not like shocked by it to a, to a ridiculous extent. Like I like movies that get gory and weird and have weird body horror. Um, I don't want anyone to walk away from this thinking like, oh, it's just too intense for him. Like, no, I've I like that kind of stuff in movies. I genuinely do. I just didn't think this one was. It feels so weird to make someone sit through two hours of movie for that kind of payoff where there are movies that do it better, sooner, and more effectively. <laughs> so they're just doing something interesting with it at all. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it's not it's not my thing. I'm not giving it a recommendation. Uh, it, it was a big surprise. It, it was a big surprise to even just to realize while watching it that I wasn't enjoying it. Uh, because I've just been thoroughly enjoying every film we've watched. I mean, Noah was a real nice surprise recently because that was a revisit for me. And although I'd already sort of reassessed my opinion rewatching it, I thought, wow, this is actually a great movie. So it, it was a surprise for this movie to be like, oh, of course, it was the one that I did no research for and was just completely unprepared for. It yeah. was like, oh, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, but we have a yeah. OK, I'll let you get your final thoughts. <laughs> You're good. But I will say that this film still has merit on our list. It's 2015 and we have The Revenant, The Hateful Eight coming out. I feel like there's a moment where Hollywood is trying to grapple with the Western genre and trying to find a place for it in the modern world. Because for a long time, the Western was Hollywood's bread and butter. This is how movies made their money. And every movie was a was a cowboy movie. And I was listening to interviews with S. Craig Zahler, the director of this film, saying that you know, no one thinks that Westerns are financially viable anymore. And that's why he couldn't get money raised to to get this film to get this film made. And he was commenting on the irony that a lot of the money was coming from Europe. How weird is that, that you have this sort of staple of the American film, the Western, and it's being financed by European money? He thinks that's really strange. And that is something to comment on. Does the Western have a place in modern cinema I, I mean yes obviously i love a lot of contemporary westerns i think there are a lot of them out there that are saying really interesting things but i think you have to you have to say something about the genre you have to subvert the tropes and cliches and these like really rotten historical preconceived notions that come with the western genre because it's a it's a nasty genre the western is primarily cowboys versus indians that's why a lot of people really got into it and and that's a really ugly thing to indulge in the U.S. government's genocide of Native Americans. I mean, what is this genre? What are the myths being perpetuated by it? And I think that this film does nothing to take any steps towards saying something interesting about the genre as a whole. It is indulging in the worst qualities of the Western. But I liked the characters and Kurt Russell did a great job. He does a better job in The Hateful Eight. <laughs> but go watch The Hateful Eight. Just go watch The Hateful Eight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the answer to all of his questions of, you know, what what is the Western, is there a place for the Western in modern films? It was all answered by The Hateful Eight, which came out the same year. And possibly The Revenant, but Andrew doesn't know yet. I don't know yet, but I, I mean, you may, you are free to recommend The Revenant as a great Western, a great modern Western. I recommended 310 to Yuma the year that came out. I mean, I know that was 2006 or seven, a long time, like a long time ago, you know, a, a substantial <laughs> time ago compared to 2015. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that was a great modern Western and that was shot digitally and it looked awesome. There we go. So, like, it's not it's not across the board. It is how you use the tools. It's not the tools themselves. Yeah. I guess the merit of this film in our list and, and what makes it really interesting to me watching it is just how... I mean, I, I sound stupid saying this, but yeah. how little has really changed in American culture between the searchers and Bone Tomahawk. <laughs> it, it's the same bullshit. It literally is. 
It's the we same didn't even, bullshit. We didn't even get into the Mexican stuff. Oh. <laughs> we didn't even touch that. There's a whole other... This movie also has a weird hatred towards Mexican people and then also has a weird subversion line of like, we don't know that about them. We don't know if they were trying to rob us or, or not. And then you're like, oh, a moral dilemma. And then the next scene is like, oh, no, they were absolutely trying to rob them. And this time they succeeded. And it's like, oh, OK. Oh, never mind. No moral dilemma here. <laughs> Just racism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's our 2015 film and 2016's right around the corner, uh, which we all remember. So, Andrew, what are we watching for 2016? Oh, my God. I'm so fucking excited. I am trying so hard not to overhype this movie because I don't want Arthur to accidentally hate it. But this is like the movie, like since episode one, I've been so excited for this episode. This is the film that convinced you to do this podcast. It, it was. When I saw this listed for 2016, I thought, I I will do a project that's working towards that. And I, I can't believe it's finally here. I'm literally getting emotional. Okay. Uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> Next week, we are discussing The Handmaiden, directed by Park Chan-wook, which any friend of mine uh, who's listening to this, most likely you've been forced to watch this by me. If not, you've absolutely been recommended it. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. This has been on my watch list for a long time, too, and I probably would have watched it before. Like two years ago. I've been saving <laughs> like During the pandemic. I've been saving it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, we, and we'll be watching it on Amazon Prime, and I'll be going more into detail during the episode, but just know if you want to watch along, Amazon Prime is the definitive and, in my opinion, the only way to watch it. Uh, but again, I'll be giving you more details on that in the actual episode. So fascinating fascinating okay great well andrew thank you for a great discussion i had a good time talking about bone tomahawk with you we, we finally did. did we found a movie that we both hated yeah i mean we've done we've done it twice we've done it twice yeah. this and things to come yeah that i mean that is so impressive that we went through all of these decades all like oh almost 70 episodes of enjoying the films at least one of us did you know there were some where we disagreed but for the most part it's been a very positive viewing experience i think that's pretty impressive and things to come i even was more adamant to defend i think that film had its heart in the right place oh yeah i mean in, in retrospect i'm like well that was so much better than bone tomahawk <laughs> yeah I think The Searchers was another one. I think that one, like, at this point officially does count, even though I defended it in the episode. My defenses were purely aesthetic, so. Sure, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much to our regular listeners. That is the end of our episode. We very much appreciate you tuning in. Don't forget to give us five stars and a review on the podcast streaming service of your choice. It really helps us with the algorithm. We're so close to the end of this project. It's really crazy. We would love to gain a bunch of listeners right now. You know, it would be so cool to get a big final push. We have been having way more listeners weekly recently than we had before. And that's awesome and humbling. And we love y'all for that. So keep it up and keep recommending it to people. To our Patreon listeners, we're about to have a, uh, I mean, at this point, you guys know the drill. Yeah, this week we're talking about how Andrew just survived a hurricane this past week. And whatever else we want to talk about, really. So, If you'd like to join our Patreon and hear our random musings and discussions, you should join us and click the link in the show notes and also on our Facebook posts. Our Facebook is A Century in Cinema. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Nathan Royal for our show's music. And thank you, Arthur, for a great episode and a and a i really should emphasize a really great movie night i had a wonderful time i'm a bitch about television sets i really am i always have been but i had a great time watching this with you and the dinner was incredible well thank you andrew